People are so offended by the subject at hand that they broke the cable. Controversial. Shinzo Abe sent his, uh, his messengers to cut the HDMI cable in ballroom one. with another edition of the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. What you're about to hear um, is actually a panel recorded at G-Fest uh, this past summer. Uh, and the subject is Japanese nationalism in the Godzilla franchise. With me here is my co-host. Matt, hi. Um, and I have uh, Chris. Say hello. Hello. And for no reason at all whatsoever, we have Kevin Derendorf of Mazer Patrol. Kevin, say hello. Hey, why am I here? We don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's because we just recorded another episode with you. Um, so, uh, Matt and Chris, um, you guys probably have a better idea of kind of what you want to say to kind of cue up this panel here. But um, uh, So, obviously, this was a hot-button topic, and... I know there was a lot of prep, and there was about 10 minutes of your time eaten away by tech issues. But um, So, Chris, set, set us up here. All right, so uh, this panel was pitched to me by, by Steve Rifle um, a while ago, just like, hey, you know, we'd be interested in doing a panel on this, because we, we'd both experienced and witnessed some, some pushback on, on the topic from different people. And since he's been doing uh, talks after releasing the book on Ishiro Honda, uh, he's had some awkward encounters with people because it's just, this is a sensitive topic on both in Japan and here. And for me, after the release of Shin Godzilla, I was just kind of amazed by seeing how many people would just say, I don't see it, thus it does not exist. And despite spending all of these hours researching the topic, just kind of being fascinated that this this aspect of, of Japanese nationalism is very much part of their pop culture. But if you're looking at it through an American lens, you just might not notice it or might not know about it. So it seemed like an interesting topic to try to tackle. And uh, unfortunately, we had to really condense a lot, it, a lot of information that's, that can be very dry uh, into a very short, digestible format. So, you know, we, we had to really just touch on tiny things here and there that that were relevant and unfortunately you know steve steve described it as a three hour two to three hour university lecture that we had to condense into a, a one hour format for godzilla fans so what you hear is like us trying our trying our damnedest to try to get as much information 
into a, digest, a very digestible format. Um, and what the result is, is not everything was, 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 tra- was said that uh, I would have liked to have said. Um, and Matt really did his best to help me out and texted me something very crucial that I forgot. And I still blew it because I didn't check my phone. Um, which I guess that phone that went off is just <laughs> acknowledge that I did not check my phone. Um, so, Do you uh, care to one, share what that tidbit was? <laughs> no. I'll leave it to the imagination. No, uh, what, the one thing I didn't say was that uh, Shin Godzilla was used for military recruitment, and there were posters with the image of, of the monster saying, you know, um, I, I don't remember what the slogan was, but it basically was like, come join the military and fight Godzilla, uh, which, you know, kind of hammered home some of the points we brought up about the film. That does um, not make me want to join the military, by the way. That sounds like a death sentence. Like, the main reason we even wanted to do this uh, little intro was because um, you got some feedback from a, a representative from, what is it, the Japan Society? Yeah, there was there was someone who Ed talked to after the panel um, who had some affiliation with the Japan Society, and basically uh, he asked, like, you know, did we do okay? And they said, yeah, you guys nailed it. So it was nice to know that we didn't, you know, I think as Ed put it, we didn't misrepresent anything. You know, we tried to present as much objective information as possible and due to the the a lot of aspects of this topic can be very offensive to certain people but it's also a very complicated discussion because it deals with uh alternative facts or an alternative uh view on historical events which is unfortunately more popular than it should be right Uh, so it was nice to hear that you know all of this didn't wasn't just three white dudes rambling on about something we have no idea what we're talking about. Well, so. yeah, I remember you were like, you were like, uh, what if like, uh, what if the uh, Japanese is in the the audience and we upset them and you know, so it, yeah, it's gratifying that uh, someone from the Japan Society complimented it and said, you know, you did you did it right. Yeah, it's yeah. just the topic. The second you mention, you know, uh, comfort women or something like that. There are people who believe it's not; it never happened. So immediately you have an issue. Yeah. So it's well, yeah, like, it's like the Holocaust deniers or something. Yeah, we were afraid of like, well, when the questions open up, with the way that Steve said in one of the emails was, and then everybody can tell us how stupid we are. So <laughs> no one had a chance to do that. So you know, we got to come off uh, scot free. It was great. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, people enjoy this panel. I think you guys, I think you guys did a good job, and it's a good primer for it. And you know, I mean. A lot of that stuff that you guys talk about, you know, you can you can find a lot more information on the internet. So, um, yeah, it's uh, and thanks to uh, Ed and Steve for letting us put this out there into the wild. Um, that's that's pretty cool. So, enjoy. This is really awkward, but thanks for coming. <laughs> so, um, just uh, we'll try to talk fast because we lost a little time there, but. Um, this is a subject that, um, first of all, I don't want to put myself forward. I don't think any of us want to put ourselves forward as experts on this subject. It's just something that has arisen recently with uh, Shin Godzilla. A lot of people have been talking about this. So we thought it would be fun to kind of um, look at this a little closer. Uh, what we're going to do is actually go back through some previous films in the series and, or in this genre and kind of look at how this subject or this theme has arisen over time. And, and how it's been possibly uh, 
misinterpreted or misread uh, occasionally. Uh, I'm Steve Reifel, and along with Ed Godzuszewski here, uh, I, I'm a co-author of a new book on Ishiro Honda, semi-new, I guess it came out last year, so it's not fresh off the presses anymore. Uh, and uh, this is Christopher Marti, he's a musician, uh, he has a musical project called Cosmic Monster. He's uh, also quite uh, a keen observer of these films and, uh, and the subject that we're going to be talking about today. So thanks for coming. I know it's Sunday and, uh, and we had some little trouble there, but we'll, we'll muddle through. So um, I thought we'd start off talking about the first Godzilla. Uh, well, actually what we should do is talk about nationalism and what we mean by nationalism. Uh, because it's really kind of a, a complex idea. There are a lot of definitions of that, sub, of that word floating around. It's something that's being bandied about now uh, in our country quite a bit. Um, for the purposes of this discussion, I think what we're really talking about, though, is uh, resurgent nationalism, uh, a type of nationalism that uh, harks back to uh, ideas uh, that go at least back to World War II and that um, uh, come up again from time to time. Does anyone want to take a stab at defining exactly the parameters of what we're talking about? Well, I mean, it's basically an alternative view of history that's, select, that's selecting what facts, and I say facts lightly, how, how certain events happened. Whether it be the absolute truth or not, they're basically picking and choosing certain things and saying this didn't happen or this happened to suit a view of this is how we want history to be reflected. Uh, going from that, a lot of people who tend to believe in this and endorse this and groups that really push this forward, unfortunately, these beliefs have seeped into everyday politics, everyday life. This isn't something that we're trying to read into specific films only. This is something that is kind of peppered throughout pop culture of Japan, the same way that we have a lot of, a lot of this stuff in our own culture. It's just reflected in a different way due to the different history. At least that's one aspect of it. So uh, this is a, a theme that has been discussed uh, in going all the way back into, uh, you know, in, in the context of the first Godzilla. Uh, when this film was released in the United States, a lot of people jumped to the conclusion that uh, by virtue of the fact that uh, the monster is tied to the atomic bomb or the hydrogen, hydrogen bomb, that the film was uh, inherently anti-American. And over time, there have been, and, and of course the film, you know, from the very start, you see these military rollouts. That's become a fixture of the genre. And I think um, a lot of our response to that uh, is tied to the music in some ways. Uh, the, the, the music is very stirring emotionally, and it's very suggestive of a, a patriotic or national theme. But um, this film, you know, everybody knows the, the I think by now the intent of the director, he stated it fairly plainly and it's been uh, discussed a lot over time, especially since the film was uh, released in its director's cut form here in the United States some years ago. Uh, director Honda saw very simply and straightforwardly that the monster was a, a, a metaphor or a stand-in for the atomic bomb and he viewed this as a, uh, not an anti-American film at all, but an anti-war film and an anti-nuclear war film. Uh, I've kind of rushed through some of these images, but the, one of the, the key uh, ways in which these the ideas are expressed are through the character of Dr. Sarazawa. Dr. Sarazawa is a, a, a veteran of the war, uh, someone scarred by the war, and when he uh, in, in, 
kind of uh, accidentally invent something that has the potential to be a, a super weapon that could, you know, if this were a nationalistic film and he were a, a nationalistic type of character, uh, he might have uh, wanted to use that weapon for the purposes of, you know, for militaristic type of purposes. And instead, he wants to suppress it. He has no intention of letting this thing be used uh, for purposes of war. Uh, and it, again, Honda's theme is expressed so eloquently at the end of the film through the speech by uh, Takashi Shimura, uh, Dr. Yamane. Uh, but this film has been reinterpreted over time. Scholars have looked at it in Japan uh, starting as far back as the 1950s and 60s and started to assign different meanings to the film and to what Godzilla represents. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but there's a, an interpretation that's been written about and picked up on by other uh, writers, most interestingly uh, also by the composer Akira Fukube, uh, who scored this film. But uh, one interpretation it has to do with Godzilla representing the souls of uh, dead Japanese soldiers come back in the form of this giant vengeful monster who wants to uh, in some way restore Imperial Japan's might. Any other comments on that film? The, just displaying the horrors of war by drawing visual analogy is pretty clear of this is the way that things are portrayed in the destruction it's at no point shown the military in a glorified manner right. they're going out to fight but then they're completely impotent against the monster nothing is done whereas to show the might of the military is a pretty typical tactic in this sort of thing that we're talking about the horrors of war are depicted on screen it's not glorified and I think that's any, any interpretation otherwise just seems kind of silly. Just mm -hmm. it's, it's right on the film. And, and we'll, as we go through this, we'll, we'll come up with some examples of uh, contrasts in the way the military is portrayed in other films. I wanted to, to talk briefly about Atragon from 1963. This is an interesting theme that has a really uh, direct uh, nationalist theme or theme about nationalism. Uh, portrayed through two characters, really, <clears throat> primarily through uh, Captain uh, uh, Jinguji, who's shown here, played by Jun Tazaki, and also through the, the Empress of Mu. Uh, the Empress of Mu is all, and the, the Mu Empire, in a way, uh, a mirror of Imperial Japan with its ruthless war and imperial ambitions. Uh, if you, I'm assuming most of you have seen the story, but it, it involves this group of Japanese war stragglers who are um, almost 20 years after the end of the war, still hold up on an island somewhere in the South Pacific. And uh, this uh, the fantastical element of the plot has this uh, Junguji and his group of men actually con constructing a super submarine and wanting to restore the Japanese empire through the use of this, this super weapon. And uh, uh, the heroes from Tokyo come and call upon him. They, they locate him and uh, ask him to use the weapon to save Japan from this attack by the Mu Empire, which is uh, bent on conquering the world. Uh, but the character of Jinguji actually mirrors something that was going on in Japan at the time. Uh, all the way up through the 1970s, uh, Japanese war stragglers, men who were stranded on islands in the South Pacific primarily, were slowly being located and brought back home. And these were men who either didn't know that the war had ended or refused to surrender and or refused to acknowledge de Japan's defeat. 
And uh, when they found these men and brought them home, often they were still wearing military uniforms or military style uniforms that they had fashioned for themselves. Uh, I mean, some of these men were, you know, in their 50s by the time they came home. And they, they were terrified of coming home to a Japan that was transformed into something they just had no concept of. Uh, there's a key, oh, actually, I wanted to show this to you. This is an article. Uh, I don't know what the purpose or what the, uh, the reason was, but apropos of nothing, it seemed a couple of years ago there was an article on Slate about Japanese war stragglers where they actually had uh, some photographs, uh, photographs of a cave that was discovered on an island uh, when some men were located there and brought home in 1972. Um, but there's a really key exchange that sort of um, exemplifies Honda's uh, attitude toward resurgent Japanese nationalism, which was uh, a kind of another, uh, uh, also a phenomenon domestically at the time. There were some tracts published in the early 1960s. There was a book published uh, by Yukio Mishima called Patriotism in 1961, uh, which is about the, uh, the 226 incident that uh, Ishiro Honda was uh, tangentially uh, associated with, not connected to, uh, which was a, an attempted military coup. Uh, against the civilian government during uh, early days of uh, the war, before the real breakout of World War II. Anyway, here's Kosumi, who is somebody like Honda, who is a war veteran who's kind of reconciled with Japan's new role in, uh, in the world uh, as a, hopefully, a, you know, Japan really rebranded itself and, and it, after the occupation and uh, in, the, in the 1950s and 1960s as a, a force for peace in the world. And uh, Kosumi essentially represents that new Japan, that reformed Japan. He, here he is in an exchange with Jinguji saying, think it over, the war ended 20 years ago. He's trying to convince Jinguji to use the weapon uh, to defend the world. And uh, Jinguji views his weapon, his submarine, as strictly for the use of, of Imperial Japan. Our Corps hasn't surrendered yet. And then there's a, an exchange with the boyfriend of uh, the daughter, not even a kind word for your daughter, you're war crazy. And again, there's a picture of uh, Yukio Mishima. Uh, he was the writer I just mentioned. There were other writers too who were publishing uh, neo-conservative, neo-national tracts at the time. And this was something that was uh, essentially a news story and something that was uh, debated quite open, openly in the public. I mean, the, the wartime straggler thing is also metaphorical, in my opinion, because the character of Jinguji is also representative, I would say, of other people of that time who haven't let go of the war, who haven't recognized that time had passed since the, the end of World War II, still holding on to that idea of, no, we have to hold on to all of this. We are not a globe, we're not a globe working together, which is what Honda's thesis most often was, was unity of the planet. So... Oh, yes, yeah, so this is a quote from Honda about this film. There were some people like, who felt like Jinguji. Honda, again, was a, a war veteran. In fact, uh, as you may know, uh, his career, the launch of his career as a director was uh, waylaid or, or delayed by a good number of years because of his repeated, uh, he was drafted repeatedly and served uh, the better part of 10 years in China. However the world turns, even when confronted with their wrongdoing, they still cannot shake loose their pride. I can understand him very well because I was also in the war, but instead of thinking, what about Japan? What I got from my war experiences was, what about humanity? Jumping ahead uh, some years here, 
this is an interesting film that uh, touches on the subject in a different way. You want to jump into this one, Ed? <laughs> Here. <clears throat> I can't really see. King versus King Ghidra? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, I think you know, the, the, at this time in, in Japan, you know, Japan was kind of like uh, at the, just at the peak of the bubble period. And so Japan's success in the, in the world was uh, you know, quite, quite strong. And, and there was a lot of feeling that uh, this film, because uh, the Godzilla Saurus happens to attack American troops on Lagos Island, uh, it's kind of interpreted that, okay, this is a very strong American, uh, anti-American statement. Shows that Japan is much stronger, uh, is, you know, and Godzilla-saurus, which is, you know, eventually becomes Godzilla, is, is striking out against the American troops. Uh, I think that, that that was well overblown, but it was something that, uh, I think it was, was it Shotaro Ishimori? The, the governor of Tokyo at that time had written a book. Um, Ishihara. Or Ishihara, Ishihara, sorry. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I knew that was the right name. Uh, you know, he'd written a book about how Japan, basically a, a, you know, something to kind of like uh, puff up Japan and then how Japan was uh, basically stronger than, than uh, you know, the United States and, and some of the other world powers. And of course, you know, not realizing that the, the bubble was about to burst very shortly. But it was kind of like a, a nationalistic, uh, very prideful uh, writing, and, and people kind of you know took that and interpreted that this film, which shows you know, Godzilla actually attacking the American troops yeah. on the shore, was was blatantly anti-American. Which, well, it's really interesting it's, the way they yeah. kind of completely reinterpret Godzilla yeah. here, and that yeah. they're actually aligning Godzilla or the Godzilla source with the Japanese military, yeah. which is. A complete about face in some ways but yeah that's really one of the fascinating things about this film is when it was made and when it takes yeah. place because japan during the occupation of course the the american america essentially tried to graft democratic values onto uh onto imperial japan the the imperial army was of course disbanded and the whole um you know purpose of the of the occupation was to remold japan in america's image essentially and um, and for a long time, that experiment or that project was viewed as a, a big success. And we, you know, for a long time, Japan essentially functioned as a client state of the United States. Uh, its economy uh, was wholly dependent upon uh, the U.S. to open up trade markets for it. And um, but by the 1970s, especially the 1980s, the Japanese economy had grown by leaps and bounds and Japan was investing heavily in the United States, and there started to be this acrimony, this tension between the U.S. and Japan during the years of the Reagan administration especially, and there were articles and books being written about how Japan was going to take over the world and buy up all of American real estate. Japan was buying property in Rockefeller Center and investing in Hollywood studios and all kinds of things, and people started to get really, uh, uh, and it, it was similar to kind of the, the tension now between Japan, I'm sorry, the United States and in China. In any case, uh, this movie is uh, largely about that tension. Uh, there's, of course, the, uh, the, national, the, the military angle that we talked about. Here is um, Shindo, yeah. yes, uh, Suchia's character, uh, who is actually saluting the monster as it, they, they think it's dying. Uh, the, the villains in this film are uh, time travelers from the future, Caucasian 
tra time travelers who come back ostensibly to save Japan from Godzilla, but what they're really after is to prevent Japan's economy from taking over the world. So there you go. It's really, um, in a way, the film is like a reaction to the anti-Japan anti sentiment that was happening uh, in the United States. Very interesting stuff. So, <laughs> this one's really interesting, the way this theme is handled here. Uh, we talked a, a few minutes ago about this, uh, this idea that really has its basis in writings that go back uh, several decades, uh, that Godzilla can be interpreted as representing the souls of the war dead. Uh, and in this film, that idea is expressed in a way that kind of turns the right-wing element of it on its head. Um, would you like to, do one of you like to take a stab at uh, sure. setting this up? Well, uh, as I think you have a clip of uh, Amamoto's speech here. That you're I don't have show. a clip, but you I don't. do have some screen grabs with the okay. subtitles, and this kind of okay. summarizes where I think Shusuke Kaneko, the director okay. of this film, is coming from. Actually, what I wanted to do was first show you. This is a um, a quote from uh, the book Godzilla on my mind, and my apologies to William Tsutsui because I, when I was typing, I misspelled his name. So if he's out there somewhere, please tell him uh, it wasn't uh, purposely. But uh, strikingly, a GMK transforms Godzilla from a patchwork of accreted, what does accreted mean? Imagery, the monster as a specter of nuclear war. I wonder if I mistyped that word. A good-natured defender, a conscious for an arrogant economic superpower into a powerful symbol of Japan's repressed memories and suppressed patriotism. So he's taking, I believe, the kind yeah. of standard, uh, yeah, the academic approach. Yeah, the standard interpretation of this uh, this theme and this idea, and maybe not giving or, or looking at what Kaneko's doing with it. Uh, yeah, quite carefully. I, I, I think he really kind of uh, missed the boat on on that one because really, what as as you as you watch the film and and you know the the, the crucial scene is when you have the old man, uh, the character played by Yamamoto. Uh, he explains what is you know what is Godzilla? Why is Godzilla attacking Japan? And it comes down to that yes, this you know Godzilla is actually the embodiment of the souls of the war dead. But you know why would why would they attack Japan? Because they're angry that uh, their sacrifice has been complete is starting to be ignored, and and the the lessons of the war are lost on uh, the nation of Japan. And the fact that their sacrifice would, you know, be forgotten and in, instead repeated—that's what has has, you know, caused Godzilla to rise and, and become angry and attack the attack Japan. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of taken that idea that you know, instead of Godzilla actually trying to restore Japan, it's it's actually you know the the fact that people are forgetting about the war that uh, Godzilla would destroy Japan instead. We haven't really gotten into. Um what uh, this idea of nationalism means and how it's perceived as a threat outside of Japan yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the when we, we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about Shin Godzilla in a minute, I promise. But uh, it's kind of important here as well. This is the sequence with the, uh, the old man, the, the kind of uh, spirit animal of the movie, who uh, uh, kind of delivers the, the theme of the film in this jailhouse type interview. 
This animal contains the restless souls of the countless people who perished during this ter the terrible battles that took place during the Pacific conflict. Because the Japanese people want to forget what happened, they've, de they've deemed it preferable to forget the pain and agony uh, that they inflicted on all of those people. So there, there are other things going on in this film that are, that are also kind of clues to where Kaneko is coming from. Do you want to talk about this, Chris? Sure, yeah. This was actually recently pointed out uh, by uh, Norman England on uh, the Kaji Transmissions commentary he did. Uh, that symbol you see on the shoulder is actually a chrysanthemum. It's, a, it's an ultra-right-wing symbol used that the kamikazes used during World War II. And this is on the biker gang that's killed by Baragon. So, Whereas there seems to be this, this pension for some people to interpret these films as nationalistic and imperialistic, these are the guys who are killed by the monster. And whereas in one scene basically it's spelled out, this is what Godzilla represents, still there is an element that he's addressing here, which is that ultra right-wing nationalism that is like that, that, the holding on to World War II, holding on to the imagery and glorifying it in some way. Have you ever read the book uh, Speed Tribes? I have not. It's, uh, it's probably close to 20 years old, but it's by a journalist named uh, Carl Taro Greenfield. It's a history or you know, book about the Bosozuku. Yeah. And um, I read it and really enjoyed it, but I didn't come away with it uh, from the, the book uh, thinking of these people as being extreme uh, right-wingers. Uh, they come across as quite goofy in the book, a bunch like. of hoodlums. Uh, here's the, uh, the chrysanthemum symbol. Yeah, I think this is just meant to represent some of the ultra-right-wing fringe groups, which they'll drive around in covered vans with speakers on top playing World War II music. Mm. These are just regular things that are, have been around since the end of the war. In defense of uh, you know, other people, I mean, obviously we're, we're going through some... Uh, we're, we're trying to figure these things out ourselves, but I think this film is actually really difficult for uh, non-Japanese to parse. There's a, there's a lot of things going on in the film that uh, you know are culturally specific. Like you think of the scene where um, I think it's the, the motorcycle gang knocks over the little uh, stone yeah. idols in the village, and the kid, the older gentleman from the village says, you know, something like, you know, look what they did. They they just destroyed that thing. And, you know, uh, the average American watching that, well, they tipped over a rock. What's the big yeah. deal, you know? <laughs> so there's a, there's a number of things that, uh, and actually, you know, they, they, they kind of tie back. It's interesting to, to, I would like to know more about where Kaneko, you know, was coming from and, and what he was thinking about when he was making this film, because he is showing people, you know, blatantly and openly disrespecting tradition, yeah. young people doing that. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, I, if I can uh, add one more thing, you know, the, the Kaneko certainly actually uh, in talking to him about this film, you know, back a few years ago, he has, you know, and, and in other interviews that I've seen, he's expressed the idea that, you know, he was definitely trying to make, you know, a statement against these right-wingers who were trying to get people to forget about what terrible things had happened during the war and glossing over that. And you know, it, it were, he had come up with the idea of certain scenes that he wanted to film that, of course, you know, probably Toho and, and the powers that be would never have let him do that. But uh, he had talked about something extreme, such as having Godzilla destroy the Imperial Palace, 
or the Yasukuni Shrine. And, you know, there, there's no greater symbol of the right wing uh, than that. So, you know, the fact that he had at least intended to, you know, include that kind of imagery in the film, I believe, pretty much shows where he was coming from as far as uh, the theme of this film. And I think it's not just that people, uh, you know, there are generations now that grew up after the war and have no, you know, direct memory of it, but it's, it's something even uh, more fundamental than that. There's this recurrent um, uh, push. Uh, it really goes back right to the end of the occupation. There's been these, there have been these periodic pushes to essentially rearm Japan to, um, it's really interesting, to basically restore uh, Japan's military sovereignty. And, um, you know, it publicly, if the public polling data is accurate, it's publicly not a real popular idea, but uh, there have been numerous uh, prime ministers that have pushed for this. Uh, there have been pushes for changes to the Mutual Security Treaty, and of course, pushes for changes to Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, which, uh, in which uh, the nation essentially waives the sovereign right of, of war. Uh, and um, it determines that the self-defense forces, which were established in 1954, are only for uh, defensive purposes. And that's kind of one of the themes that uh, emerges in this next film that we're going to talk about. But I thought, Chris, we should talk here a little bit because of Hideaki Anno, a little yes. bit about the connection between anime and this theme of nationalism. So as mentioned before, this isn't particular to one film that people are reading into. The aesthetic of Imperial Japan, the, the message of this right-wing sort of movement, this ide ideology, has been present in anime and pop culture. So from Space Battleship Yamato to Hideaki Anno's Gunbuster, these things aren't hidden. If you, it's out there in the open. And the more that you research about this, the more that you start to watch works from certain individuals, you see it's not a secret. It's just this is what some people believe in. Um, trying to see what you pulled up. Oh, Gunbuster. Yeah, Gunbuster is an interesting case. Uh, it was the first film by Gainax Studios, which went on to make Evangelion. Uh, it has this interesting iconography it takes from Honda's films, from like Battle in Outer Space, but ultimately the morality is kind of flipped and it's not quite used in the same, same context. Uh, it's a very pro-military film, and at certain points, if you get a oh, film, excuse me, series, uh, if you find yourself watching it, you start to feel very uncomfortable at certain moments when a character is like, well, I could save you and your daughter. I'm sorry I can't do that. But, well, isn't it great to be in the military? And it's just these throwaway lines that you're like, that, did that just happen? And then the, the plot keeps moving along. This dates back all the way to what, the mid-late 80s? Yeah, late like 80s. Because I remember, this was actually, you know, in, I am old enough to remember... On the West Coast, we had a chain called Suncoast Video. I don't know if that was uh, yeah, where you guys lived, but yeah. but yeah. in the days of uh, you know VHS tapes, I remember uh, this series having like a you know a display on the the end of the anime aisle, and um, you know they, and I I I'll fully admit I've never sat and watched it, but they were playing it often in the stores. But my understanding of this is um, again we were talking about like these cultural filters and uh, obstacles and of language, culture, you know, meaning. And this apparently, this series has lots of imperialist messaging and dialogue and things, but, but the average Westerner is not gonna pick up on that 
because it's filtered through translations and subtitles and, and we just aren't going to necessarily pick up on those meanings. So. It's also, if you didn't see it when it came out with the knowledge of what was happening in the country at the time, something's going to be lost. The same way that if, if you watch a film that came out after Hurricane Katrina, mm. you're it, in that moment, it, all the hot button issues will be on your mind. If you see it 10 years later, that will be somewhat removed. See it 10 years later in a different country, mm -hmm. it's a di each time a different filter is applied and something is lost in the translation. This is also made, again, during the, the decade, the 1980s, when Japan was growing uh, uh, exponentially. And I think part of the pride expressed through this show, this series, ha has something to do with that, with yeah. the, the political and economic climate of the day. So here we get to the uh, elephant in the convention, uh, Shin Godzilla. So uh, where to begin? Uh, a lot has been uh, talked, debated about this film. What I think we're going to do is kind of go over a couple of scenes that sort of exemplify uh, what's going on in the movie. But I thought it might be interesting to talk about uh, Nippon Kaigi just for a second here. Oh, uh, this is something that um, uh, the reason I, I brought up this picture is because there's a this is a convention of Nippon Kaigi, which is a, a Japanese uh, a conservative lobby group, and they have uh, one of their uh, most famous members is the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Mr. Abe, who's on the monitor there. But um, this picture of Abe on the monitors is interesting because we're going to compare it to some shots from the film in a few minutes here. If you see Abe, he's got the, the I mean, it's, he's the Prime Minister of Japan, of course, but it's interesting the way the flag is positioned. Uh, Nippon Kaigi, um, again, I'm no expert on this stuff, but there's been some reporting on it. Um, it's a, a lobbying group. Uh, with about, I think the membership is something like 30 or 40,000 members, but which might sound uh, small in a country of millions of people, but their, uh, their membership is quite powerful and they include not only the prime minister, but also members of his cabinet and a lot of high-ranking uh, politicians in the country. And the group is um, basically uh, dedicated to restoring uh, some traditional values um, they believe strongly in the restoration of the sovereign Japanese military. Uh, they also talk about things like, uh, you know, cultural things like, uh, you know, uh, keeping women in the home to raise the family, not working so much, and uh, uh, other things of that nature. Uh, what am I forgetting? Restoring the power of the emperor, things of that nature. Any other? Restoring Japan to pre-World War II glory, I think, is yeah. the... Uh shorthand that I've read a few times. Okay. Well, in any case, uh, some of their uh, positions are uh, expressed uh, either directly or indirectly through the film. We also, uh, I wanted to take a look here at this shot of the Yasukuni Shrine. Uh, this is um, something that uh, has drawn a lot of controversy over the last 20, 30 years. This is a shrine in um, Tokyo, not far actually. I. I visited it once there on my first trip to Japan, uh, not knowing the history of it. I was just led there by someone who was showing me around. And uh, it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, not far from the old Toho offices. Is that correct? Is that? Okay, well, anyway, that's a, a mistake on my part. But anyway, this is the shrine that has become controversial because um, uh, in the 1970s, this is a shrine to uh, Japan's, essentially Japan's war dead, both military and civilian. Uh, the souls of, I think, something like two million people are supposedly 
uh, resting there, and and that includes about a thousand uh, war criminals, who and including uh, fourteen A-class war criminals whose souls were uh, were uh, I don't know if interred is the right word, but in the 1970s, uh, these souls were uh, acknowledged to be housed there. And this is a, a right-wing group that's um, uh, paying homage to these people at the, outside the temple. Anyway, uh, this, this location has become quite controversial. Uh, it's become a, sort of a political lightning rod. Uh, Abe, the, the prime minister, has visited it, uh, starting with his predecessor, um, Koizumi, uh, it really became like this hot button issue because the prime minister kept uh, he, the prime minister, the previous prime minister visited it several times, uh, always with the caveat that he was visiting as a civilian. But nevertheless, uh, the governments of uh, South Korea, North Korea, and China took great offense to uh, uh, the prime minister of Japan paying homage at a, a site associated with Class A war criminals. All right. So we talked a little, just a little bit about uh, Article 9 and, uh, of the Constitution and um, uh, military self-determination. Uh, something you see in this film, in Shin Godzilla, that you don't really see in, in the previous films are the, the you know, mention, mere mention of the relationship uh, between, the security relationship between Japan and the United States. We've requested aid by U.S. forces in Japan. I like the, uh, the, the button on this. It'll be worse than Gojira. Yeah. But, I mean, it's an expression of this, uh, this desire to go back to a state of, of military self-determination, which really, uh, it, you know, is, makes a lot of Japan's neighbors nervous for understandable reasons, given the, the history there. Uh, Chris, uh, I, I wanted to turn this part to you, because I, we want to contrast uh, between Honda's... Um, uh, uh, representation of international cooperation and uh, the, uh, you know the world response to a crisis to the way the new film handles it. Well, it, it, if any of you have seen Battle in Outer Space, uh, Honda made some very definitive choices in how he chose to frame the UN meetings. So when first presented, uh, the meetings are happening. One, you're seeing the shots with all of these flags of the countries in one. Seems like it's a pretty normal establishing shot. You cut to any of the tables where the, the different members from each country are sitting there, there's never one flag in the frame at any given point. At any point throughout this entire film, never. And then after the incident on the moon and they encounter the Natal aliens, you cut back, there's no longer flags. Yeah. I don't have any, I'm sorry, I don't have a shot here from that portion of the film, but I did you know, capture a number of views of this initial conference. And look at the way the, the flags are all arranged. There's no, nothing is, no, no one nation's flag is superseding the other. It's, it's showing a global unity. It's not about any one country triumphing over this foe. It's about the world coming together, dropping all of, all of any issues would be keeping them from doing that to combat a common foe, which in this case is the Natal. Mm. Uh, it shows an idealized view of humanity considering when this came out, the Cold War was happening, and Japan's smack dab in the middle of it. Um, but yeah, then you, there's a contrast to how this is shown in Shin Godzilla in a very big way. Oh, yes. So um, I have several shots here we want to look at, but um, this is one that's fairly straightforward, a military meeting. But when we get into the offices of Rondo and his, you know, the staff, 
the flag is positioned very strategically in, in a lot of different shots. And it's always the Japanese flag. This is, uh, this is a, fl a movie about Japan, and one of the things that it's about anyway is the idea of Japan kind of getting out from underneath Washington's thumb and not having to rely on, on Washington for protection and security. If you notice in that frame actually on the left, the flag is behind her head. Mm -hmm. Often when framing characters in films, general cinematography, if there's something going on in the character's head, it's framed behind them. It's just kind of standard cinematography how things work. So already it's established that she's, no, she's not thinking from the perspective of the United States. Something to note. Interesting. Ah, there's another. And these are just a few that we were able to pick out. There's, there are other examples of similar things throughout the film. Okay. Hello. Well, it looks like... Uh, I guess that's the end of the slides. But there's a couple of things we haven't talked about. Yes. Yes. I mean, for one thing, just to put a button on that, uh, Battle in Outer Space and Shin Godzilla have an interesting contrast because of one, the, what we just mentioned with the flags, but also the use of the, the music. Whereas Battle in Outer Space shows the power of a unified world. This is showing the power of a unified Japan. There's your thesis. It's just, it's, it, these are things that when you're looking at the film, it doesn't, this is not an interpretation one way or the other. This is what it's showing. It's showing the power of a unified force. And I wanted to ask Ed, uh, you've talked about this film with some of your colleagues. Ed works in Japan. He spends a lot of time there. He works for a, uh, a Japanese company or the American, uh, he's basically, he's a big wig at, a, at a, the American, uh, he's the, the head of the American division of a Japanese company. I guess that's the way I would put it, but and tell me if that's wrong. But he yeah. travels and, and works there quite a bit. And I'd like uh, to ask you if you've, talked about this film and what it means to you know the, the average joe there yeah well in uh, speaking and and i have to say that of course my my interest in these films is pretty well known around my company but uh so you know when when i uh, start talking to people about this uh, you know they they all know why i'm 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 asking them because i'm i'm asking from the the viewpoint of you know a fan of these films uh, but pretty much, you know, there, there's not anybody that works in my company that, that really is a fan of these films. So I thought talking to these people, I can get the more, you know, like at least a slice of life of what, what the common uh, perception of this particular film is. Because most people haven't seen hardly any of the old films, but because this one you know, happened to be some kind of a phenomenon you know, back in 2016, a lot of them actually did see it and they were actually looking forward to talking to me about it. But the, the funny thing was like, the, fir the first thing I noticed is that without exception, uh, the only thing that they didn't talk about when talking about this film was Godzilla. That was the only thing that they didn't really care about. They all had something else to say about it. And it was surprising to me how very few people picked up on, on any, even any hint of like a nationalistic feeling or you know, very few mentioned this. You know, the idea of the, the this film advocating for uh, the uh, constitution to be changed and, and and glorifying the military. A lot of them were just kind of interested in who was who were the stars, and they they really all latched on to the criticism of the government and how the government is 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 very slow to act and. You know, which I thought was extremely low-hanging fruit because if, if you know anything about Japan, it's the land of bureaucracy and, 
and everything is done uh, with a consensus and it takes a long time to get things done. Uh, so that was the thing that they, they really you know, kind of uh, latched onto more than anything. There was very little awareness even that there was some kind of, you know, any, any kind of nationalistic or, or right-wing leaning kind of themes in the film. And to some extent, uh, that doesn't surprise me because I, and this is where I want that one uh, uh, story that I told you about. Uh, the, there's, uh, I think, one reason it doesn't surprise me is if I go back to about 10 years ago, I went to Germany with some of our engineers. And these you know, engineers are very well-educated people, uh, very smart, sharp people, you know, electrical engineers, uh, chemical engineers. And we went, I was in Nuremberg, Germany, and in, in, in Nuremberg they have a, a museum uh, that you know, details all of the, the rise of the Nazi party and all the atrocities that they uh, committed. And right next to it is the Reichstag, which is this place where Hitler held these uh, very frightening rallies where you know, they, they'd, he'd come out from behind this uh, big stone wall and it's a big stadium and they had these cauldrons of fire set out in the middle of the field and it's a really frightening uh, thing. And we're standing out there in the middle of the Reichstag after we had gone through the museum and one of the engineers turns and says, says to me, you know, look at all these things that you know, Nazi Germany did and you know, why isn't the world always criticizing Germany for all these terrible things they did? You know, why are they always talking just about Japan and criticizing us? And it really struck me there, like, you know, how clueless can you be? The, you know, the, this, this whole thing, this, this, this museum and the Reichstag being the way it's preserved, it's Germany taking responsibility for what they did, acknowledging all the terrible things that happened during World War II. And why is the world, you know, still to this day, especially in, in Asia, criticizing Japan? Because they tend not to acknowledge what they did. There's this kind of, uh, somewhat revisionist history going on or, or suppression of, of, of some of the facts that happened during the war. And, you know, th this guy, very well-educated guy, I believe that, you know, when, when, it, when all this happened, I thought to myself, wow, this is really what, you know, the education system in Japan has produced. You have a, a very intelligent guy who really isn't aware of the fact that, you know, there's all these things that the world is criticizing them for just because they don't take responsibility. They don't apologize for things like comfort women and some of the, uh, you know, like the rape of Nanking, which is in the Japanese uh, education, education system uh, somewhat suppressed. Yeah, no, I think the reaction, uh, one of the reasons that these um, um, surges in, or you know, apparent surges in Japanese nationalism, uh, one of the reasons they get everybody's you know, uh, hackles up is because of this reaction to any kind of uh, discussion of these events. Uh, one thing we, we should bring up, because this ties to the world of Godzilla and anime, uh, one good example is in 2007, the House of Representatives passed a resolution calling upon Japan to apologize publicly, to have the Prime Minister of Japan uh, apologize publicly for the enslavement of something like 200,000 women, primarily Koreans, but also Chinese, and uh, during the, the Second World War, uh, as comfort women, sex slaves. Uh, and 
the reaction from Japan was, of course, uh, quite strong and vehement. And one of the, the primary aspects of that reaction was a, uh, an advertorial, uh, an, an ad taken out in the opinion, I think it was in the opinion pages of the Washington Post in 2007. And the author of that letter, that advertisement, was uh, Koichi Sugiyama, who uh, those of us here know him as the composer for Godzilla vs. Biollante, but he's a, a big name in uh, anime and, and uh, in music for anime. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that and some of the names who signed on to that letter? Yeah, it was well, quite it, a, an amazing thing. Yes, so this, this letter was called The Facts, and it was the put out by this, this group called the, the Society for the Dissemination of Historical Fact, <laughs> which uh, ironically is anything but. Uh, this is a group that seeks to correct the world about how comfort women didn't exist, the rape of Nanking didn't happen, and anybody who says it did, uh, if they're Japanese, were brainwashed by the Chinese. Um, this is what this group posits. Uh, the signatures on this included very prominent figures all over the political spectrum, including our, the current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's advisors. Uh, it's a very long list, and it's, you can see it online. You can read you can read the actual article itself, and it's uh, very disturbing. Um, they, the names go up to his personal uh, Shinzo Abe's personal advisors. So this shows you that this isn't something that's hidden. It's not in the shadows. It's all out there. One of the things I was fascinated with, uh, uh, one of our friends, uh, Norman, <laughs> posted, some, he's always uh, posting and talking about things related to this uh, occasionally, but uh, he found a, a, an interesting uh, news report that came out of some uh, news agency from Australia, and I hadn't seen it before, but it was just, you know, a, a segment, uh, I don't know, five, ten minute segment on the Nippon Kaigi. And I, I just had read about this uh, phenomenon, but I hadn't actually seen what it looks like. And to see that group of people in that big convention hall, as you say, out in the open, espousing these kind of uh, contrarian views, it was interesting. But it's not terribly unlike some of the things going on here now. So No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, one, one parallel that can be drawn is we just had the recent uh, controversy over taking down Confederate mm -hmm. statues. Some parallel that happened was when a, comfort, a statue in uh, tribute to comfort women was erected in San Francisco, the mayor of Osaka responded, uh, not none too pleased to say the least, and he wanted to sever all ties mm -hmm. with San Francisco because of this. Um, uh, it's just, it's an uncomfortable discussion to have, but that's a parallel that if you can think of how much of a hot button issue that is here, this is an international version of that sort of issue. And, you know, the United States is not um, completely uh, immune to these kinds of revisions either. And, um, you know, even things like Hiroshima are still difficult for some people to discuss. So uh, yeah, it's a, we don't mean this as a, as a Japan bashing session by any means. We just find this stuff interesting. I think it makes the films more interesting and, and, and to understand kind of the, some of the, the, the things that were going on at the time that they were made and some of the things that the filmmakers were thinking about and dealing with. So... Uh, do we have any closing thoughts or? I mean, one, one note that I think seems to tie into Shin Godzilla pretty well is the, the posit that Shinzo Abe put out for his entire plan to, to stimulate the economy and bolster everyone was the only thing stopping Japan is the lack of national pride. And if you look at that film, what is it all about? Thanks for coming. Do we want to?
We've got a couple of minutes. You want to take a question or two? We've got to get five minutes for the next We've got to get five minutes for, okay, we got to clear out. Thanks, guys. Okay.